Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Josh Marshall podcast. So we are uh, a week and a day out from the 2020-2022 midterm election. Uh, when we talked to you last, we knew that it had been a, a surprise election, right? Big picture was not what we, certainly not what the conventional wisdom suggested. It was not what I assumed it would be. And and now we have a, you know, a most of it is into focus now. We know pretty much everything. I think that uh, you know, it's. I think it's clear that the uh, Republicans will take the House. The fact that that remained in suspense for uh, a week or almost a week was you know totally shocking in in itself. Um, I think a few of the networks have called it already, but not even all of them. It's it's still kind of a little. It's not truly up in the air, uh, but it's close enough that not every network has I think officially officially called it. So we know that uh, the. Senate Democrats have retained the, the retained control of the Senate, which is obviously a huge thing. And I think for most of the last year seemed like, you know, the best case scenario and like the only possible positive outcome. Like it was treated as a total, total given that uh, Democrats would lose lose control of the House. And many feared that you might lose it by you know, 40, 50 seats, you know, like some huge margin. I think that, you know, the margins were the predicted margins were down somewhat um, in the in the in the final days. I think kind of a consensus was something, you know, 15 to 35, something like that, give or take. And it now seems like we're looking at, you know, a five seat margin, maybe, I, I don't know exactly, uh, you know, I, that probably means like an eight or nine seat pickup. It, it's not always, you know, one one person, uh, one reader contacted me at some point a few weeks ago and was saying like, you know, I, I think the Democrats position is better than people are saying because I'm, you know, going through these numbers. Well, what you got to remember is some states in the new Congress have more members. So it's not just it's not just apples to apples, right? You kind of uh, take one out of New York, uh, add a couple to Florida, I assume. I think actually uh, California lost what, one or two seats? So anyway, that changes things. But the point is, Republicans will control the House, but by an extremely slender margin, probably more slender than the margin that Democrats held it by in the previous Congress. Now, one may say like, okay, you know, they did fine with it, the Dem you know, uh, uh, Pelosi. So, you know, that's not that big a deal. I think that is a that is misunderstanding some of the dynamics that are in play here. One is that Nancy Pelosi is a not just a skilled, she is a legis a parliamentary leader of kind of historic proportions, I think. And and that's a reality whether you think that she should have packed it in a few years ago and made room for, you know, kind of rising leaders in the party or you think it's bad having someone from liberal San Francisco being the representative, national representative of the party, or if you think she's a neoliberal sellout or whatever, she is a master legislative leader. And what I mean by that is it is hard to keep your caucus um, on side when you've just got, you know, two or three seats. So that is a, that is a big thing. And Kevin McCarthy is no Nancy Pelosi, to put it mildly. The other thing is that uh, the Republican Party is 
riven by really pretty profound conflicts right now that we are about to see play out. Um, now, w- one could um, one could say, well, what about you know moderates and the AOC wing of the Democratic Party? What about that? That seemed pretty intense. And the fact that that uh, that was largely kept, you know, kind of kind of kept on point, you know, th- through part of that is 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 Nancy Pelosi, but also I think that um, I think that for various reasons there were things about the contemporary Democratic Party that made that manageable. Now, again, that continues to be a big big thing. I'm not saying it's not, but in many ways there were many things that those two groups. Uh, could, you know, sort of negotiate on on incremental terms. In any case, he is going to have his hands full. I think in many ways that is a, a kind of a poison chalice to be able to to have that. Now, the fact that um, the fact that it's only, you know, anywhere between like three and five seats, something like that, paradoxically will make the far right of the caucus much more powerful. And in a lot of ways, it probably increases the risk of debt ceiling defaults and all sorts of crazy stuff, because basically it will give, you know, any two or three members of the Freedom Caucus the ability to just torpedo anything he does. So he has to, you know, whoever the craziest person is, he's got to get that person on board. Um, And one of the, you know, one of the dynamics that I think we are going to see uh, playing out over the coming months is that... You know, one of the big takeaways, although I think it's at least somewhat overstated at the moment, is that, you know, the Republican Party is now trying to kind of, if if not divorce, you know, at least move to separate bedrooms with Donald Trump, right? Maybe a separation, something like that, to kind of get a, get a little distance. The problem is, <laughs> if you if you've got if you have uh, Kevin McCarthy being, you know, held hostage by the sort of the looniest people in the House caucus, that's not the same thing. So anyway, we're going to see all these kind of things. Um, as we know, one other thing I want to mention before we get uh, get talking here, we know that that Democrats will have 50 seats in in the new Senate. So that means that Chuck Schumer will be the majority leader. They will control um they will control the calendar. It means that although, you know, uh, uh, Joe Manchin might get a little more tetchy, right, about judicial nominations since he's got his reelection, if he runs, you know, got his, he has his reelection coming up in, in, in two years. But basically, you're going to be able to keep the, the, the judicial nomination pipeline, keep that going. Uh, if for whatever reason there is a vacancy on the Supreme Court, you can, you know, you you can you can repl- replace that person, so that's a big big deal. But one thing I want to mention: you've got the Warnock race um, down in Georgia, and people have talked about that largely as well. Here's here's our opportunity to kind of get some leverage against Mansion. You know, we don't need Mansion if we have fifty one seats. Well, I remind you that Kirsten Cinema is still in the mix, so. You kind of that was the whole point of getting fifty-two senators, and in some ways, although they were both, um, you know, annoying and obstreperous in their own in their own unique ways, um, there's an argument that cinema was the was the worst of the two. Um, although you know that's a that is a you know something that people have been um, reasoning about since like Thomas Aquinas, which of these two is was 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 the was the worst of the two. In any case, here here's the other point though. Yes, it is huge to have uh, a 50 seats that is tie broken by the vice president and you have control. That is huge, huge, huge. Um, the biggest thing being judicial appointments. Absolutely. But what people don't necessarily get is that um, the committee assignments were even, even number of Democrats and Republicans on the committee assignments. Um, Democrats couldn't uh, Democratic chairs couldn't unilaterally issue subpoenas. They couldn't unilaterally, you know, kind of send nominations to the floor, stuff like that. Now, you could, there were other things that like Chuck Schumer could do. He said, like, okay, we're going to bring this thing down. You know, there were ways to, to manage things. But basically, the difference between 50 senators and 51 is actually a pretty big deal. The 50 senator deal was and is 
you have control, but there's a lot of sand in the gears because of that. So having 51 will be a big difference. Now, the other thing, which I think people have been more attuned to, is that the 2024 Senate map is a really hard one. It's a really hard one. Remember, this is a replay of, 20, of uh, 2018, which was obviously a good, you know, a good year for Democrats. Uh, you have, depending on, I mean, I think you, what is it? You have Democratic senators up for re-election in West Virginia, Montana, Ohio, and I think one other state that maybe I'm forgetting. Um, in any case, those are not easy states, right? Not easy states at all. And I th- there's, there's like Arizona. one. Arizona. Sorry, thinking. Cinema's up. Oh, I think I was even thinking of someone, you know, in addition. But in any case, the point is, is that there are a lot of seats, defending seats that are going to be tough. I mean, we have seen, you know, Tim Ryan ran a really good race and he lost pretty, you know, by a pretty sizable margin. And J.D. Vance was a kind of a, just a, a kind of a bad person and a bad candidate. So like, that's difficult. Now, Sherrod Brown uh, won in 2018. He's shown he can uh, he can survive in um, you know in a Trump in a Trumpy climate. So I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying you've got a number of races that are real challenges. And uh, for pickups, you're talking about trying to beat like Ted Cruz in Texas. And I'd have to go down the list again. But again, it's a tough list. It's a tough list. So if you can get another Senate seat. You know, just to give you a little cushion, you really need it. Um, so those are those are the um, that is what has come into focus so far over the last uh, week. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about um, you know, it's it's. <laughs> I was going to say uh, the Republican Civil War. It's 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 almost not a civil war because everybody's like you know juiced up to be pissed, but they're not really sure who to fight, who's fighting who, which side they're on. They're just all kind of feral. And 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 looking for trouble. Uh, so uh, my my co-host Kate Regan and I are going to get into all that. But before we do, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Traveling for the holidays while you're packing up the kids, dogs, and sweaters for your annual visit to your in-laws' house, don't forget to pack Grady's Cold Brew Kit because without proper planning, drinking a single sip from your mother-in-law's moldy coffee pot will be even harder on your stomach than watching O A N N over family dinner. Luckily, the Grady's Cold Brew Kit makes it easy to drink delicious coffee on the go. Just toss in some bean bags, add water, stick the pouch in the fridge overnight, and you'll have smooth, flavorful coffee all week long. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. So, Kate Riga, what is up? Yeah, so let's just do some little house cleaning of the leftover election stuff that hadn't happened or hadn't happened decisively since we talked last. So like you said, our chambers are pretty much settled out. You know, the House hasn't been called yet, but pretty clear at this point, Republicans are going to have a small majority. But one of the big races that we had basically no idea on last time we spoke was governor of Arizona. And and our listeners will remember, even then, even a week ago, we were talking about how, you know, if you kind of had to put money down, you'd probably put it on Carrie Lake because, you know, she's clearly, you know, telegenic and charming and nuts in a more palatable way. And Katie Hobbs ran this very understated to the point of people getting angry kind of campaign and didn't want to debate and you know, it's just kind of very low key. Um, and here we are. And Katie Hobbs won, you know, Carrie Lake, who everybody was talking about as kind of the new, big, you know, cool kid on the block for the MAGA Republicans lost. And I have to say, you know, we we here at the Josh Marshall podcast, you know, get, take credit for our correct predictions, but you got to own the ones you were wrong about. And this one still flattens me. I never in a million years would have guessed. I didn't even honestly think it would be close. And I am shocked that Hobbs won. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I certainly didn't think it was impossible, but I did not expect it would not. I'm not sure if I predicted one way or another, but I was assuming that, that, that Lake would win. 
Um, and it's and just for our our listeners, if you're not from Arizona, it's not just that she's really telegenic and all that kind of stuff. I think she's basically I don't know the exact details, but she was a reporter slash anchor for one of the big affiliates. I I assume like in Phoenix or something like that for like 20 years. So this is some and and um. I don't know exactly her background. I think she was like a Republican, then she was a Democrat for a while, and maybe an independent. And and you know, presumably as as the you know nightly news anchor or one of the big reporters or something like that, you're not going to get a, a real sense of their politics. But the point is that um, she may be totally insane now, but that's a pretty recent thing. Like she, there was something like you know she resigned from her. TV gig sometime maybe during the pandemic kind of going all fake news and stuff like that. But the point is, is that for like a generation, she's been someone you just watch on the news. And as as is often the case with those kinds of people, you kind of feel like, oh, I know Carrie, you know, even though you don't know her. But she's been like in your living room. I mean, I, I don't know who watches local local nightly news anymore. Um but uh, that's a f- so so she came into that with all sorts of advantages, not the least of which is that, I mean, I think this election maybe raises some questions, but, in, you know, it's still more a Republican state than a Democratic state. I mean, at the moment, you've got two Democratic senators and a, and a Democratic governor. So, like, maybe that's up for revision. Uh, although I will say, you know, one of the things that has come out of um, – you know, the first week uh, is that, you know, there is a pretty, there is a significant delta between the Republican candidates who ran, you know, the way we're used to a lot of, a lot of Republicans running, which is, you know, they ha- they get their box checked by Trump. They're like, rah, rah, go Trump. But they're basically just kind of keeping their heads down, Right. And versus the people like, you know, the election denying secretaries of state and Carrie Lake and stuff, those people went down hard, mm-hmm. like almost everywhere. And I think there's some level of wishful thinking uh, for Republicans on this, but they can certainly point to some people and say, this person was not running as a big Trump mega fan and they won, you know? So, you know, we'll see. Yeah. The other piece of kind of election. Uh, news that I wanted to wrap up is we had we knew this last week during the pod that Georgia would be going to a runoff. But something I I want our listeners to kind of keep front of mind is we already have kind of a legal fight brewing over the early vote during the runoffs. The Warnock campaign plus the DSCC and Georgia Democrats filed a lawsuit in Fulton County Superior Court on Monday because there are very very few days of early voting. And in part, this is thanks to the Republicans in the Georgia legislature passing a bundle of voter restrictions after Warnock and Ossoff won last time to try to ensure that, well, can't let that happen again, you know. And part of that was hacking the runoff calendar in half. So you've got way fewer days for people to, you know, request ballots for counties to count, and that includes early voting. So right now, they're only mandated to have of, I think, five days of early voting. And then counties can add on three if they want to. But there are a ton of restrictions. And some of these do predate this most recent kind of voter suppression bundle. But all these restrictions about, well, you can't have, you know, only weekdays and and not the Saturday after a federal holiday is on the Thursday and all these just ridiculous kind of restrictions. And now we're looking at the runoffs December 6th, right? Which is already, that's tricky because that is right after Thanksgiving. Like that's a hard time to get people to pay attention. So is that, is, is uh, in 2020, when were those? They were late December or mid-December or what was it exactly? Or wait a second, actually. It was January, right? Yeah. They okay, now the, off during the insurrection. Right. Now I'm remembering that. Now I'm remembering that. That that was, that um, uh, the woman who, the appointed woman that, I guess Ossoff, I forget who was running against who, that Ossoff, I think, was running against. I can't remember her name. What's that her? was Warnock and Leffler, and then Le- Ossoff okay. and Purdue. Right. Okay. So Leffler, as the sort of, you know, you're going to vote not to 
to, uh, you know, accept the electoral votes and all that kind of stuff that she was finding out as that stuff was happening, whether or not she was still going to be senator. And that was and, and that was clearly a cudgel that Trump had over her kind of like, you know what I want, you, you know. You, mm-hmm. you have to give this to me. And I and I think, didn't she end up, I think she was like going to vote not to certify, but then after the insurrection and after she lost, she decided that's right. to certify. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a big, that's, that's a, that's chopping off a lot of time. Right. And so now there's this tiff because there, the Saturday after Thanksgiving is one of the only weekend days in this very curtailed calendar where counties could open the polls. And obviously, our listeners know, can easily deduce why weekend voting is a big deal. A lot of people can't leave work and leave in the middle of the day. Yeah, I was going to say, there's this thing, many people work. <laughs> many. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> people yeah. are saying. Yeah. Right. So the Saturday after Thanksgiving, and basically Raffensperger and Gabe Sterling, who's kind of his big right-hand man, you know, the ones who are running elections in Georgia, they, last week, were like, we're preparing everything, all the counties are getting ready, we will likely have voting the Saturday after Thanksgiving, so we're getting ready for that too, blah, blah, blah. Okay, and then they sent out a bulletin a few days later telling all the counties, you cannot be open for Thanksgiving, you cannot be open for a Friday state holiday, and you cannot be open the Saturday afterwards. So just totally reversing themselves. And fun asterisk note here, said Friday state holiday is the holiday under which Georgia used to celebrate Robert E. Lee's birthday. And it's not that anymore. They took away the you know Confederate tribute, but left the holiday. But that's like a, a little wrinkle that's involved here. What is the holiday now? Like, what do they just, is it like holiday f- name formerly known, like a prince thing? <laughs> yeah. Formerly known as, as... No, that's a good question. Because often they re... You know, it's funny that there's... Um... This is totally uh, random, but it, it it struck me as a very interesting and good thing that if you look at, uh, and, and if I have some small part of this wrong, I apologize. Uh, Deluge him with emails. If yeah, is. exactly. <laughs> King King County in Washington State is is Seattle, King County. And I looked it up one time and I'm like, okay, who's, who's that for? And it says Martin Luther King. And I was like, wait a sec. Like that can't, you know, that can't be right. But what it is, is that a number of years ago, I don't know who the original king was. I think it was someone kind of problematic um, in in one way or another. So they wanted to, you know, uh, uh, you know, kind of remove that person from a place of honor. And they said, you know, obviously, whatever the initial, the original person did, it's like King County. Like we got the signs, we got the we got the the forms, and that's you know the mail stuff and all this kind of stuff. So they came up with like let's leave it King County, but now it's named after Martin Luther King, and you're like very creative. There like you that's go. like yeah. And so I you know with something like this, if it's if it's like uh, you know Confederate Day or like bummer we still don't have Slavery Day or something like that, you think you could you know you you there there are. Um, there are certainly many things, many people and things on offer who could commemorate things that are more righteous and and palatable. So, yeah. but in any case, I, I interrupted. No, no, no. Yeah. So they sent out this bulletin saying, just kidding, you can't vote on this day. And then the Democratic entities sued and, and they say that this is a misreading of state law, that that rule about the days following the state holidays, which seems like, I don't know, insane to anyone who's just like looking at it from the outside. Anyway, that, that those things only apply to primary and general elections and not to runoffs and that the legislature has been very specific and kind of coming up with different rules for each of those categories, blah, blah, blah. And then Raffensperger, who, you know, has been, I think, shrouded in this reputation of integrity ever since. And, you know, okay, rightfully so for not letting Trump bully him into stealing an election. That does not mean, though, that he has not always been of the voter suppressive bent because he has been. And this is, you know, he goes in that special bucket where we put people who like weren't willing to be treasonous enough to overthrow the democracy, like good for them. But that doesn't mean they're like a 
a stain-free person. You know, this is like when we were talking about Cassidy Hutchinson uh, testifying and everyone was like, an American hero. And it's like, well, okay, we don't have to go that far. And Raffensperger is in that bucket. But I, I, I would say I would even go like a little further just because I, I basically I agree with you. He's He's been put a lot of restrictions on voting, ID, all that kind of stuff. He does not have good values on access to the vote. But he did, you know, when all of the stuff of Trumpism was coming at him, he didn't budge. And, you know, I, no, I agree. I agree. I, I will never no, see him as a as a I will always see him as someone with real integrity and courage, even if he has terrible policy ideas that are awful, I guess is how I'd put it. Mm, I don't know if I feel quite as kindly towards him as that. I agree. He was tough when it mattered. I also think the person, I don't know, in charge of the vote in a state that is historically disenfranchised black people continuing uh, to disenfranchise them kind of sucks. Well, but. so is it, okay, when they made that turnabout, do we know, I mean, maybe one way is just like, we decided we could and it'd be fun. So we did it. Is it, did the they kind of jump the gun and not really, had they not kind of looked back at what the law said kind of yeah, thing or. I mean, it, it's, you know, best kind best we know is kind of, well, then the lawyers and his office looked at it and said, just kidding. We can't have elections on this day. So, you know, that's kind of where we are now. And then he sent Raffensperger sent on a statement after the lawsuit saying, you know, Warnock is trying to muddy the waters. He's trying to, uh, you know, bully counties into not following the law to help his political prospects, which is like, okay, man, relax. Like, you're the one who just pulled a complete 180 on a pretty critical day of early voting. At the very least, maybe you want to have, like, some kid gloves on about the situation, you know? Yeah, I would, I would think that that, um, as you say, having, like, turned about like that, you're like, dude, Relax, right? Yeah, like, yeah. come on. It's just, it can't be that crazy if it was your idea three days ago. Exactly. And then meanwhile, over at the Herschel Walker camp, you have, he got asked about it. And he's like, wait, there's early voting for the runoff? No, I don't think there is. So he's like on a different planet about this whole situation. Um, but that's that's going down in Georgia. So the key thing that I think is good to remember as we're going into this is that, you know, these are runoffs being conducted in a situation that Republicans have engineered to make it easier for them to win, even as compared to in 2020. And I'm not saying that I think that gives Walker the edge. You know, we talked about this last time, and I still do think Warnock's got to be favored in a runoff. But sometimes I think when Democrats overcome these different voter suppression mechanisms, it gives us the feeling that they're not important. Yep. And that's just, you know, that's just not true. I mean, it's, it's obviously not the worst case scenario, but there is gaming the system happening here. And that's just important for us to keep front of mind, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the, the one big thing is that, I mean, look, uh, uh, Walker is a piece of work. And even his supporters know that. And what he had in his back pocket is the fact that, you know, you don't like me? Well, okay, kiss the Seneca, bye then. You know, so, so that was huge. That is no longer uh, available. And that takes one of his biggest arguments away from him. The other thing, though, and this gets to what I, I think we're about to talk about, at least briefly, with uh, President Trump, okay. you know, Trump has just stomped back in, uh, or maybe, maybe I should say kind of stepped back in kind of like a light trot back in you know it was a little it was a little, was a little low energy but basically he's he's taken a lot of oxygen kind of out of you know kind of out of the out of the situation and and i i don't know i just have a kind of a feeling about it that um democrats are going to be pretty focused on a we want this seat but i think there are lots of democrats is we want Raphael warnock like, we really like him. We'd be bummed if he was no longer a senator. Um, whereas on the Republican side, they've got a lot of fishes in the fire. Trump is, again, back to trying to kind of, uh, uh, you know, throw his weight around. So I, I do think Walker kind of has to be the underdog. But it's, it's like all of these recent Georgia races, you're talking about like a couple points, yeah. which, which means that like just, just, 
weird, unexpected things about turnout or just or or, or logics that we're um, you know that 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 aren't apparent to us could be different. So you can't you can't say it's a it's a, it's a done deal or kind of like he's a heavy favorite. Just it, it kind of looks like he's probably favored. And we shouldn't forget he got more votes the first time, so that's got to count for something. Totally. Yeah. Why don't you give us the little Reader's Digest of Trump's announcement speech last night for for those of us who you know would rather drive an ice pick into our ear than listen to him when you don't have to. Yeah. And so that's not it, even because of his politics. It's just because he is at a horrible public speaker yeah it's it, it was a kind of a weird thing you know he did it and and i think this was a mistake and i'm not sure quite why um why they did it they did it like at the ballroom at mar-a-lago so the crowd was you know a lot of people from like the trump cinematic universe and the richies who were members there basically so small uh <laughs> Compared to the rallies, he oh, usually absolutely, likes to have? absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. This would be—I I always have a hard time, um, you know, having any sense of the size of a crowd. But this was more like, um, you know, if you if you rented a big hall um, for like a very big wedding mm-hmm. kind okay. of thing, you know. So, so yes, much smaller, um, filled, but much smaller, and. Um, you know, sometimes people kind of needed the cues to know when to clap and stuff. And he seemed, I mean, I've seen lots of different reactions to how he seemed. Um, people saying, oh, it was low energy. I thought it was more kind of like, you know, uh, greatest hits tour from an old yeah. band. <laughs> you know, not bad, but like you're not bringing any new stuff. It's kind of, you know, remember when kind of feel. Um, and... Uh, so I was surprised. Maybe they just didn't have enough time. I was surprised they didn't do one of the arena rallies mm-hmm. because those people are gonna are gonna cheer totally, absolutely right. And that and that that kind of raucous thing. That's his, you know. That's his. That's his place. Um, it was you know it was a largely scripted speech. Um, I guess my my overall sense of this is. I do think this election is the beginning of the end for Trump. But, but, and I'm going to do a post on this, the beginning of the end, not the end. And getting from the beginning of the end to the end of the end can take a long time. And I think this probably plays out over a few cycles. Um, You know, one of the things, one of the things I was thinking in the lead up to the midterms was that people needed to understand that we had had two straight elections in which the Republicans had lost almost entirely because of Donald Trump. Um, and that had been sort of obscured by the fact that that uh, some non-Donald Trump Republicans did okay. You know, they held, they held a lot of Senate seats that Democrats thought they might win in 2020. Uh, they gained seats in the House. But at the end of the day, their president lost and they lost control of the Senate. That's a, that's a loss, right? Um, and so, you know, you don't, you don't win five straight election cycles. That's not how it works. And so this is one of the reasons I, you know, was, was not terribly optimistic about 2022 at the, you know, in the final days. Now it's three, right? And I think this cycle you know, once you see three, you're like, oh, okay. I, I didn't really, I didn't really fully think through what happened in 2020. We lost, and we lost because of Trump. Um, but this one, I think, was, and you see this being sort of a universal, not universal for a certain kind of Republican, a kind of a universal takeaway is that people have a limit on how much kind of crazy bullshit they're gonna they're gonna accept. Right. And um, so there's this sense of like, this guy's costing us elections. Right. And kind of like, it's, it's funny that one of the things when I was watching that, uh, when I was watching that speech last night, I think one of the things, and I'm not sure if this was like in his actual speech or what I was, the prism I was seeing it through, one of the powers of Trump, part of the sort of the, the malevolent, charismatic magic 
of Trump is that he's up there talking and you know he can hurt people, right? So he may say something like totally ridiculous and stupid or outrageous, but certainly for Republicans, they're thinking like, I'm not crossing this guy because he can end my career. And that gives, that just gives him a power. Um, and, and I think for other Republicans, partly because there was that, um, you know, not quite getting what happened in uh, 2020, the sense of like, yeah, okay, this guy's fucking nuts, but he wins elections, right? And kind of like, he wins elections. What are you going to do? He's the guy. And so I, I think now you're, you're seeing from a number of fronts, people are saying, this guy is a liability. This guy held us back. We should have done better. Um, and I don't know what to make of these polls that show DeSantis ahead of Trump or whatever. I kind of, I tend to doubt it. But I think the question is, the question is not whether DeSantis might, you know, win a head-to-head vote between him and Trump, but is Trump ready to go away quietly and to say, okay, I guess, I guess I'm done. I lost out to DeSantis. I don't think so. So I think that the, the, um, the question is whether anybody can unite the Republican Party in a meaningful way with Trump still pissed. And I think the answer is no. And I don't think that's going to I don't think that's going to change right away. Um, maybe it'll be quicker than I think, but I, I tend to doubt it. Yeah. So kind of part of this Republican infighting stuff uh, that we should mention quickly is that congressional Republicans are also being you know roiled by a really, really bad cycle for them. A really, really bad cycle, like you say, influenced by Trump. Um, the last of many where it looks like fealty to him has cost them. And we're seeing that kind of play out in the leadership battles now. So you, on the one hand, you have McCarthy gunning for the speakership and, you know, he's going to become speaker. I don't think that's a question. The other people who are running, it's more of a protesting. However, in the first vote that they took yesterday, and you know, keep in mind, the House has not officially been called yet, but this is some, some scene setting for when that happens. I think there were around 30 people who yeah, voted 31, I think, him. something like that, yeah. Right, yeah. which doesn't mean, again, that he's not going to become speaker, but that means you've got 30 people who are coming out the gate willing to oppose him, right? You know, he is going to be like the newly minted speaker and you've got 30 people who are not trying to toady up or, you know, suck up win favors who are just coming out of the gate being like, nope, we are going to oppose you. And we're talking about an overall margin here of a handful of seats, not that many. So that just is a good kind of data point in the chaotic next two years he is going to reign over. And one Uh, one of the things that they're, that, I mean, I don't think any of them are serious about getting someone else to be speaker, let alone they're not going to succeed. They're not even really trying. They're trying to get him to beg and, 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 and sort of set the terms of the next Congress, which is to say, you work for us. We will tell you what is okay and what is not okay. And one of the things apparently they're pushing for is a rule that would kind of at any time allow them to force a vote on whether he can remain speaker, you know, um, which I, I don't know, uh, you know, I, that's what this is about. It's making him beg and he is going to be a speaker that I was going to say, I was going to say that uh, it's going to be like Boehner and and Ryan, but it may actually be worse. You know, there's been all these um, articles written over the last, uh, you know, month or so saying, oh, Kevin McCarthy, a ball buster, the toughest dude you don't want to meet in a dark alley. You know, kind of like how he just like, you know, runs the caucus with an iron hand. That is so absurd. I mean, those of us who actually have our eyes open know that is not what it is. I mean, basically, um, what McCarthy has done, you know, these two other speakers were sort of undone by uh, the Freedom Caucus, by these guys sort of using their clout as a group to kind of, in essence, run run the caucus from behind the scenes. And... McCarthy's angle on that has been, 
What do you want? You tell me what you want. And if you change your mind, you want something else, tell me that too. I'm going to deliver you Freedom Caucus guys. I'm going to deliver what you want. So we have nothing to argue about. So there's no problem. And that has really been his, you know, you, you solve the problem by, by getting rid of the problem. We have, we're, not, we're not arguing over anything. And I think what he has, what was always obvious was that, you know, it, it's, it's sort of like uh, when press people go to Republicans and say, help us not be biased. Can you, can you give me some pointers how to, how to not be biased? It's not about that. It is about forcing a genuflecting compliant posture. And it, we're seeing that now. I mean, they don't even, you know, you have these like, you know, Matt, Matt Gates and stuff saying, oh, I can't support uh, Kevin McCarthy. You never, you never see like, you're like, well, why? Like, okay, is there, is there some problem? And it's, it's, it's not that he's just the guy and they want to control the guy. So that's the whole, that's the whole thing. And then over in the Senate, you have Rick Scott announcing that he's going to challenge, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell for the leadership there. And that has been roiling around at the same time as people, you know, a few choice people, Rubio, uh, for one, are kind of saying we don't want to have the leadership election this week. We're recording on Wednesday. That's when it was supposed to be. Um, we need time to, I don't know, reflect more on <laughs> And again, this is not a situation where I think anyone actually thinks that McConnell is not going to win back the leadership. And it is frankly just hilarious to me. You know, it's just you, you wish you could bottle and sell that male confidence of someone who just fucked up his job in such a historic unprecedented way. And then his next reaction is to say, to demand more power. I mean, that is, that's something special coming from Rick Scott here to say, hey, I was in charge of winning the Senate for us. Not only did I not do that, you should now put me in charge of the caucus because I lost. I could not secure good candidates. I put out a plan letting people know I wanted to let Medicare and uh, and Social Security sunset. And now I think it's my time to have bigger a bigger role to play in this party. What do you think, gents? Yeah, no, it's it's you know that that standard line. It's time for it's time for you know the old leadership has failed us. It's time for new leadership. I'm like, dude, you are the old leadership. Like, and what? you did fail. Yeah, and what are you talking about? <laughs> like, that's not a bad argument, but like. That's the argument for getting rid of you. Exactly. Um, and, and so, and there's definitely this aspect of this, that this is, uh, you know, the, McCar the uh, McConnell types want Trump to move on, to be done, to, be, to, to become like a normal former president. You show up in the, you know, you, you kind of do some charity stuff. You show up at the end of elections to give a few speeches and that's it. Um, and there is, I think, at least a, you know, marriage of convenience with DeSantis. Maybe he's the guy who's going to help us do that. And this Rick Scott thing is to a large degree, I think, on Trump's behalf, Trump saying, hey, I need someone to bloody up Mitch. Who's got me here? Right. And that's what Rick Scott is doing. Rick Scott is also just like, a self-promoting, ridiculous person. Um, he's not, I mean, he's not charismatic to put it mildly. And, but I think more broadly, you have this, you have this, um, you have this dynamic because they're all upset and they all want to say, it's time for a change. Someone has to pay, but they're not quite sure who, who has to pay or, or, or what has to change. And, and one of the biggest problems is it's probably them. You know, the, 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 one of the, one of the big dynamics in over the last like 20, 30 years of American political history is, you know, you have Republican standard bearers who in some sense you can say are sort of establishment figures. And um, John Boehner, Bob Dole, John McCain, Mitt Romney, blah, 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 blah. So when things don't go well, you say, hey, we non-Rhino people have always been here. It's time for our chance. But they've been running things. It's been Trump's party. So in a sense, they're the, I mean, and, and certainly the McConnell 
And a lot of more sheepish people are saying like, dude, you're the problem. You're the problem. You can see it in the election results. The people who are going off on this Trump nonsense got slaughtered. So you're the problem. So everybody wants, everybody's just in a feral mood and wants to fight, but they can't quite make sense of who they're supposed to, who they're going to fight with. And that, and that gives everything this kind of, um, this kind of weird play acting cosplay sort of vibe. Yep, exactly. All right, so we'll take a couple questions before the end here. We got a lot of good ones after the election. Um, so, you know, bear with us. We'll get to more of them in future elections. But here's one from Jeff who says, um, does a slim Republican House majority change the calculus on a dead default? Perhaps not because McCarthy has to cater to the far right to win speakership. I think this is an interesting question, especially because this is something we've been talking about for a long time, that the greatest danger of a Republican House is centered on the debt ceiling. You know, they can do all the investigations they want. They can impeach Biden and, and every member of the cabinet. But the real place where the bite would be worse than the bark is the debt ceiling. And I do think a slimmer majority doesn't take away that threat, but somewhat diminishes it because... A lot of this majority is on the backs of these, um, you know, new frontline New York Republicans who are going to get absolutely freaking wiped out in two years yep. if they become Marjorie Greens the second they get into there. They're not going to have a big hunger for doing something like that. I I agree with um with Jeff here that you know McCarthy does have to kind of will definitely be in the thrall of the far right to some degree. But this is the kind of thing where the Tea Party into the Freedom Caucus, where that part of the caucus needs to have enough power to convince people to get on a completely self-destructive and insane tactic. And again, not saying that can't happen, not saying the House has not moved to the right, you know, every year since then, but a lot of people coming in in this Republican caucus are going to have different motives than Matt Gates, you know, and I think that does kind of make it harder for them to get uh, a, a mass of people behind this. And th- that is one of the interesting things, because certainly going into this, the idea was, man, this is going to be a MAGA House majority. You're going to have like 50 new hardcore Trumpers and that's going to it's going to change everything. Clearly, that did not happen. You know, if you don't have like 50 anybody, you've got like probably seven or eight or something like that. Um, so, yeah, you know, this is the thing I can really see it both ways. On the one hand, it definitely makes the 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 far right more powerful and makes them more in McCarthy's thrall. In that sense, makes debt limit more likely. Blah 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 blah. blah. Um, on the other hand, as you say, you've got it. You know, you've got half a dozen reps in New York and New Jersey who are you know, kind of like dead men walking in, you know, in terms of their electoral future. And if they become the poster boys of a lot of crazy stuff, the Republicans do, that's obviously going to be very, that's, they're going to be toast. Um, The one thing to keep in mind, though, is from one perspective, the Freedom Caucus doesn't have to convince anybody to do anything. They just say, we're not going to vote for it. Like, do whatever you want. Like, the 20 of us are no. Now, where and 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 I don't I need to I need to research again about discharge petitions but there's a thing called a discharge petition doesn't happen very often but we know that the big thing in the house is the speaker controls the schedule like you can have something that's going to win overwhelmingly and they just don't bring it to a vote so it doesn't matter but there's a thing called the di- discharge petition what that is if you you take a petition and uh if you get a majority of members to sign it, I guess technically that it gets discharged from the committee and goes to the floor or something. But the point is, is that you can force a vote on something. And generally speaking, this almost never happens because even if you support it, you do not, that is like an unforgivable breach with the leadership. You don't do that. They are in charge. You don't force their hand. There's a reason why they're doing it. I don't know if something like I, I just I need to research the details and and a little more of the mores. Uh, I don't know if you have a situation where Democrats, you know, push a discharge petition on a debt limit thing and you get a few of those those 
New York Republicans to say, "Hey, uh, we're not we're not playing this." Um, I have no idea, but but um, it is a it's a terrible position for McCarthy to be in, and and couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Uh, be, but because you've got all these fissures in their party. And one key thing is, is that aside from possibly blowing up the world economy, it's not like they can do anything anyway. They don't have the Senate. They don't have the White House. And that's what makes from a kind of, you know, cool eyed political judgment. That's what makes this not a terrible situation for the Democrats, because you get the chance to have Republicans totally discredit themselves, maybe, you know, by being totally bonkers for two years, while having them pretty cordoned off from a, being able to accomplish much. So, you know, who knows? I think it's really, I don't think we know which which thing it makes more like. I think on balance, it makes it more likely that you are going to have a debt limit blow up, but there's certainly a contrary argument that's pretty good. I think, yeah, I, I agree with you, but I think here we're in a 50-50 situation. I think if there had been the red wave that was foretold, it would be a certainty that we would have a debt limit blow up. So I think maybe the chances have gone down a bit, but I agree with you that I don't think it's been defined. Well, rem- remember that if you had, if McCarthy had like a 40 seat majority and uh, 20 Freedom Caucus people say, hey, can't do it. And he'd say like, cool, don't do it. I got the votes too bad. So th- there's all these different, you know, th- there's, there's, um, I, it's just hard to say. There's yep. a lot of different ways to look at it. Okay. Andy asks, if Warnock takes the runoff, should some credible Arizona Democrat announce a primary against Cinema immediately to force her to play ball? And we, there's been a, a question that's been bouncing around a lot that's kind of of the same vein, which is that assuming Warnock wins, what if Biden gives Cinema like a cabinet post and then leaves it to Katie Hobbs to fill the seat? Um, and, you know, with someone who would be willing to get rid of the filibuster, Jeff sent us in um, that question. And I, when I first saw it on Twitter, it like, kind of made me laugh aloud because it's one of those things that like, feels brilliant and then also feels like too cute to ever work in real life. I think just because I'm taking the second question here, which is that I don't think cinema would take that deal. Yeah, I don't think so either. The cabinet because, you know, one thing we've learned about her is that she seems to quite enjoy being the center of attention and then the, the kind of vote on which it all turns. So I don't know if she'd willingly give up that kind of power for some, you know, dinky cabinet post. Yeah. But and then in terms of the primary opponent, I think she will have a very credible primary opponent soon. You know, I mean, Ruben Gallego, I guess, has been making the most noise in that in that direction. And I think he and probably other people who are considering a run are probably somewhat buoyed by the fact that Democrats just had an incredibly strong showing in Arizona, showing that there's a lot of energy from the party and that cinema's quote unquote strategy of like basically being a Republican might not be meeting the moment right now. Yeah. But I also have no confidence that that would kind of force her to play ball in any way, just because her political calculus up to this point has been pretty baffling to me. So I don't know. Yeah, you have to, you, you, in sense. a situation like that, you 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 want to assume the person's not an idiot. idiot. And I think she is, in this context, an idiot. Um, I, you know, the, the, the cinema thing is really complicated because to me, I don't even think, you know, the normal thing with running someone running a primary is you say, hey, you're going to lose a seat, man. You know, you have, a, you have a divisive primary and then whoever comes out of it, blah, 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 blah. I think that is almost besides the point. I think she is essentially unelectable in Arizona because Democrats hate her, you know, and, and, and does every Democrat hate her? No. But in a state like Arizona, at best a purple state, you have to have every single Democrat lined up and pumped. And that is just impossible. So, and, and as we said earlier in the, in the episode, Democrats are, have a really tough midterm coming up. Uh, not midterm, you know, uh, 2024, a tough election coming up. They really can't afford to, to, to lose that seat. So, and, and with Gallego, you know, he... Um, I'm a big fan of his, but he's also more left wing than Kelly and and certainly cinema. And I think there's a real question. Can he carry, uh, can he win statewide? 
I, you know, I don't know. And obviously it's not like he's going to do it on a lark because then he gives up his house seat. So if, um, if Democrats had held the house by like one seat, I was really thinking that it was, that that would set up this and you have 51 sentences, Warnock wins. Then you have this thing and you kind of play it and you know, you almost make a kind of a grand bargain with cinema. You kind of say like, look, you're toast. Democrats hate you. There's like no way you can win. But if you give us that second vote and we pass a row law, you will, and I think this is true, a lot of things would be forgiven. As much as she sucks, if she was the one who said, I brought back Roe, I did it. Even though you had to do it under duress and blah, 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 blah. I think that would, I think, I think that would get her, or at least position her to be reelected in Arizona. And for all the talk about, oh, she wants to be a lobbyist. Oh, she wants to get picked up by one of her, you know, um, uh, private equity pals to become, to go into that business. I don't think so. I think she wants to be a senator. Um, obviously, that, they don't have the house. So that is, um, you know, that's probably off limits. Although again, I, I, I need, I, I'm, I'm eager to talk to some house experts about discharge petitions because if every, if every, um, uh, if every Democrat in the house signs discharge petition and they need like three or four Republicans and, and, you know, you probably have four just in, in New York state, are they going to want to say like, Nope, sorry. Not for me. So, so you know, there's there's possibilities there, and maybe maybe I am maybe I am. Un, it, it's not a matter of underestimating uh, Ruben Gallego. It's I I think he's uh, he's 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 great. But uh, you know, you, you you certain kinds of politicians can run in certain kinds of states, and and it's worth remembering that just uh, you know four years ago, it was seemed like a kind of a pretty kind of a hail mary can Kirsten Cinema win there. I mean, now we've had like three straight um, Senate elections. Democrats have won all of them. So who knows? But that's a, that's a dicey, it's, it's, it's hard because it's not just on, you know, Democrats need that seat. So, you know, it's a tough thing. And again, it's not, people are presenting it as, hey, Democrats need that seat. So you got to cut her some slack. I don't think it's a matter of cutting her slack. I don't think she can win in as this Kirsten Cinema, think how much she's like reviled. It just, it's, I, yeah. I don't think she can. All right, let's take one more question before we wrap. This is from John, who says, as a New York State resident, I have a question about the poor performance of Democrats in this election. To what extent do you think this result might be fallout from the embarrassing and disastrous end to Andrew Cuomo's term as governor? And the New York thing has been percolating. You know, I think there's a lot of interesting theories about it. For one, you have the redistricting thing, which I'll get into why it's not a complete answer, but it is certainly part of the answer, which is Republicans have greater gerrymandering power than Democrats. That's just factually true. And New York was supposed to be kind of the one place where Democrats both had, you know, super majority control in Albany and hadn't handed that power off to an independent commission like they have in California. So that was a place where they were supposed to kind of build in a buffer of like five or six seats for themselves to combat the losses from Republicans elsewhere. Places like Florida, stuff like exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. long story short, not only was there, you know, it, it was an extreme partisan gerrymander. Not only was that thrown out um, by a block of conservative or, you know, conservative Democratic judges at New York's high court, all who were appointed by Andrew Cuomo, who has a rich history of appointing conservatives. Not only was it tossed out, they did not give them the chance to redraw the map the way that a lower judge would have. They gave the power straight to an independent, you know, professor guy. Well, I would I would say I actually think that was not a good map. And I don't mean good for Democrats. And, mm -hmm. and just for those of you who aren't, uh, you know, who aren't up on New York State politics, basically, they chose this special master and, you know, like a, I guess, a political scientist or something like that. And this person has this deep belief in, um, in compact districts. So basically, each district should be a square. 
Not exactly, but kind of close. You shouldn't have one sort of like, you know, gangling along. And I think we all know that often, you know, crazy gerrymanders are like that. But sometimes you have communities of interest that that some of that does make sense, right? And and so and um so compactness is is certainly one virtue. So you don't have things that are just ridiculous, totally made up to advantage one party. But you basically, they picked a special master who's got this hobby horse about compactness, and he really cut through a lot of natural constituencies in the state. And so it wasn't, and and this is not someone who had any, I don't think this person had any partisan axe to grind at all. There was no no evidence of that. But you ended up with kind of weird districts that that, again, cut through you know, they call them communities of interest. So that, even though it wasn't a a a um, Republican gerrymander, it took a lot of incumbent Democrats and at least kind of forced them into dealing with new, you know, kind of pretty new constituencies, which, which you know, uh, I'm not sure it put them at a disadvantage, but gave them another thing they had to deal with. But anyway. So I think the other piece is that Zeldin, while he didn't win, he ran a comparatively pretty strong campaign and had some coattails there. And then you had the fact that Hochul was not exactly, you know, a barn burner in her own right. So, you know, I think that also affected the the more micro enthusiasm going on there. Yeah, I, I think, and I certainly, this did not occur to me in advance, but, you know, Hochul is an accidental governor. Right. I mean, I don't remember, you know, he had a different lieutenant governor, Cuomo. Uh, she's from I can't remember if she's from like Buffalo. Right. Yeah. Buffalo. You know, so so a part of New York state that's closer to the big Midwestern battleground states than New York City, the New York City suburbs, um, where the sort of center of gravity of the state's uh, politics are. So we I think there was a kind of a general assumption. Hey, it's New York. Uh, it is um, it's a democratic state. It's blue state. Um, a lot of people felt like, oh, so glad to be done with Andrew Cuomo. We've got the first woman governor, you know, onward and upward. And I think that sort of obscured the fact for a lot of people, she's an accidental governor. Um, she she had not been elected. This was not a re-election. She'd never, I mean, she was elected lieutenant governor, but that's not the same thing. Um, and uh I don't think she's a terribly experienced politician. Uh, you know, Andrew Cuomo's been, you know, running statewide in the state for forever. He ran his dad's campaigns. I mean, say what you want about the guy. That guy is like a consummate politician. And I think the other thing, and I'm not saying she's, it's not a knock on her. I'm not saying she's a bad politician. I'm saying this was her first statewide race. Um, first statewide, I mean, again, you run for lieutenant governor, but that's not the, that, that's not who's carrying the ticket in New York State or, or in, in, in most states. Um, I think the other thing was, and one of the reasons, in addition to what, what got him bounced, the harassment allegations, um, and a lot of people were obviously very glad to see him go over that, but the other reason a lot of people uh, wanted to see him go, and you sort of alluded to this with uh, appointing conservative Democrats to the courts, is that Cuomo had this kind of thing in the state where, yeah, it's a blue state and he's a Democrat, but he kind of propped up certain elements of the Republican Party to have him be in control. And he kind of balanced between the two. Um, and that worked for him politically. And uh, he, you know, he, he, he ran, I think, I mean, he, he, one for governor three times, I think by successively larger margins each time. Before that, he had at least run once for attorney general. I can't remember if he if he was twice attorney general. Um, that and and that allowed him to hold a lot of cards in the state. It sort of showed to Republicans, kind of like, if not for me, do you want to be do you want to be governed by the sort of the hardcore liberals from downstate? if not for me. And um, to uh, Democrats, he won elections, right? Now, a lot, a lot of back and forth here, but I think the point is that her becoming governor changed a lot of the political dynamics in the state. 
And that, I think, allowed Zeldin to do considerably better than a lot of us thought. And that's really the story. And and Zeldin does better. House candidates uh, uh, did better. I think largely they're operating on his his coattails. I mean, I have not seen, I still haven't seen an argument for why it is that lots of endangered Democrats, I mean, almost all the endangered Democrats, um, won nationwide, and a lot that weren't even seen as in danger lost in New York. I still haven't seen a good explanation of that, but I think what I'm talking about with Hochul and 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 Cuomo and how that kind of rejiggered the the, the state's partisan politics is part of it. And there has been a lot of criticism that's bubbled up, especially from the more kind of left leaning corner, saying that this is just evidence of kind of long lingering rot in the Democratic machine in New York, and there are definitely data points of some kind of shitty infighting type stuff, you know, where it's a lot of, like you say, the the libs downstate versus, you know, more centrist New York element that I, I do think is at play and probably is not, it doesn't feel completely unbelievable that a state that's, you know, often governed by one party would have these kind of internal divisions that ultimately start weakening that party's foundation. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's, 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 I mean, it's funny in, in where I vote in New York city, uh, you know, basically none of the, the elections are contested and in the, probably anybody, or at least in, in my part of New York city, people will recognize this. You know, one of the things down, it said like, you know, for ju- some low level judge you vote for, I don't even know, but each time it'll say, you know, vote for any of the three. And there's three Democrats. Right. Like there's literally no. I mean, you don't have any. And and that's just because it's a demo. It's a very democratic area. And Republicans, like, what's the point? So you know, you there is. Um, you want to have some two party give and take because that's just uh, that's healthy. And what is kind of ironic about it is that the in state Democrats held on pretty much okay. It's the congressional candidates, which kind of has nothing to do with that. Right. right? I mean, that is, that is a national thing where everything is close. So, so, but again, in the way that, um, that is a fairly rarefied analysis, right? Um, individual voters, I think you're like, wow, you know, it's only Democrats running our state. Maybe give the other guys a, a a try. And I'm not sure you're quite putting together like, well, okay, but that's national and, um, you know, nothing to do with New York State. And it's the people who want to ban abortion and all that kind of stuff. And you do have, you've always had, um, as, as much as it's a democratic state, it's a democratic metropolitan area, New York City, its suburbs, a lot of Long Island. You have, um, you have, you know, Buffalo, couple other urban areas but outside of there it's not like it's like wildly conservative but it's at best purple right so you have that and i i i think that's kind of the best explanation or at least beginning of an explanation but i um i still haven't seen like a good example a, a good explanation of why that happened and and maybe the best example is they just didn't see it coming and they didn't you know when you see something late often it's too late you can't Mm -hmm. you can't come back from it okay all right well uh remember that uh the josh marshall podcast is brought to you by grady's cold brew iced coffee you can get 25 percent off at grady's coldbrew.com with promo code tpm that's grady's coldbrew.com with promo code tpm and that is it see you next week later The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen.